Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Life and Art from FT Weekend. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and this, our first show of 2024, is our Friday chat show. This is a very special one. Today, we are talking about the Japanese master of animation, Hayao Miyazaki, and his new film, The Boy and the Heron. It came out in Japan this past summer and has just in the past month made its way to the U.S. and the U.K. The Boy and the Heron is Miyazaki's latest film with his animation company, Studio Ghibli. He is debatably the world's most famous living animator, and he's known for creating vibrant, fantastical worlds in films like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro. Miyazaki is 82 years old and announced his retirement back in 2013, but here he is with a new feature-length animation that's set during World War II about a boy named Mahito who enters an enchanted castle looking for his mother who's died. Before we start, I'll say that we do get pretty detailed about plot in this conversation, so if you're worried about spoilers, you might want to come back. Joining me today, despite our 14-hour time difference, is the Financial Times' Asia business editor, Leo Lewis. Not only does Leo know Japan firsthand, he also co-wrote a book about Japanese animation or anime. Hi, Leo. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Hi. And in London, we have Stephen Bush, a dear friend of the podcast, a resident film buff, and a political columnist at the FT. His newsletter is called Inside Politics. Stephen, welcome. Thanks very much for having me back. Thanks for being back. Okay, so I'd love to talk about what we thought of the film. Um, Leo, I'd love to start with you. I'm pretty sure you were the first of all of us to see The Boy in the Heron. Uh, you saw it in Japan. And one great quirk of Miyazaki is that he released absolutely no trailers or no ads for the movie, so you would have been going in blind. Um, can you tell us about watching it? Like, big picture, what were your first impressions uh, when you came it, out? It, yeah, so so I mean, I've I've now seen it twice, and for fans of of his, for fans of anime, and you know, for fans of of the canon, you know, it was lovely. You know, it was a really mm -hmm. sort of you know, it was it was like a sort of warm bowl of of chicken soup. It was exactly <laughs> what you wanted at exactly the right time. Yeah, but I think there was a a very satisfying sense of of, of it being. You know, something that uh, that was worth the wait, uh, and, and I think mm. that's a, that's a, a big key to this that it was worth the wait. Um, and and you know, in the intervening period, I'd actually sat down a couple of years ago during the pandemic, actually, with Toshio Suzuki, you know, the the, the producer of, of the studio, and we sort of talked about not about this pr project that was all under strict wraps, but just about the idea of of the guy himself, of, of Miyazaki himself, retiring. And there was a very sort of yeah. wry moment as the question of does a guy like that ever actually retire uh, came <laughs> up, and, and you know, and, and, and I said as I was watching the film, I, I, I was thrown back to that conversation. It was like, yes, actually, this is not the work of a retired man. No, it's a man who can't help himself. Right, right. What about you, Stephen? So I loved it. I mean, I definitely have a, a very high tolerance level for a film, which basically it's like you know, it's a dreamlike meditation on his previous work <laughs> and also the succession crisis in his you know in his organization and whether or not he can truly retire right. and 
Mm-hmm. The person I went to see it with, I think, enjoyed it less, but uh, <laughs> but I loved it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Stephen, when you talk about the succession crisis, you mean that it's not quite clear what's going to happen when Miyazaki dies and uh, his son, who has a large role in the company, is is not quite the same guy. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's not clear who will take over. It's not clear if his son wants to take over. Many of the animators who've been there for a long time have left to form their, their own yeah. studio. So, yeah, it's, it's very much up in the air what will happen to the studio after he does retire, if he truly is retiring. Okay, so let's give listeners who haven't seen it a sense of what happens in The Boy and the Heron. Um, so, plot-wise, I will start. So, the main character is a young boy named Mahito, and his mother dies in the first sort of nightmare scene of the film in this fire. And a year later, his father brings Mahito to the countryside uh, because he's decided to marry his late wife's sister, who's now pregnant. Um, So the boy, Mahito, misses his mom. He hates his new school. He kind of wants out of this new life. And then this giant heron appears. Um, The heron is pretty menacing. It's kind of a fraudster, but kind of a guide. And it lures Mahito into an abandoned castle on the property to find his dead mother, who it claims is still alive. Um, And then a lot of juicy stuff happens in the castle. Stephen, could you explain what sort of happens or what parts you found most memorable? Um, So what then kind of happens is this kind of like dreamlike journey where he kind of first is looking for his mother then he's trying to find his stepmother and 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 rescue her from this kind of weird world in which it's you know kind of full of deeply terrifying birds um yes. before <laughs> so he many. kind of fin- finally encounters his great uncle who's the sort of wizard at the heart of it who then mm-hmm. says to him that he wants him to take over fixing this world which is otherwise going to be overrun by one of the many groups of terrifying predatory birds <laughs> The, the images which really stood out um, for me are the light in this film is, I think, better than I've ever seen in any of the others and in any animated film. In some ways, the sort of the meta theme of the great uncle figure is this kind of magical creator who every day has to get up and create more and kind of wants to stop but feels they kind of can't. Mm-hmm. If that was the sort of final image of him as a creator, it was a very sort of powerful kind of final 15 minutes and i think the yeah the the images which most stayed with me were the bits where they were transitioning from kind of one state of this odd sprawling magical world um to another you know including my own favorite bit with the little old ladies was when one of them kind of grows back out of of mito's pocket at the end <laughs> and yeah it was a really wonderful <laughs> film i thought yeah totally leo you liked the old ladies too didn't you for listeners there's sort of this gaggle of caretakers of the household yeah, I mean, the scene that I, I I found very very charming actually, and and quite interesting because uh, as as the boy is introduced to this to this house that uh, that he's going to come to live in, um, he 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 comes down a corridor and, and is confronted by this sort of swarm of of elderly ladies' bottoms, and they're all <laughs> they're all sort of in constant sort of motion, sort of the, you know, the, the, and they're all sort of buttocks jostling with each other as they they crowd over this case which has got. Kind of tinned food from, that's been brought from the from the big city because it's wartime and they can't access you know tobacco and cans of things. yeah so that they they haven't had this for a while they can smell it through the case you know and <laughs> right. what, what's so interesting to me was that you know as these old women 
show their faces and they all turn around and they're all very distinctively different faces but they they're all very very familiar to watchers of Miyazaki mm-hmm. films they're not you know that they're, 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 you know Howl's Moving Castle there's a woman that looks pretty much exactly like uh, one of the main figures in, in in there and he invests them with you know that that sort of little boy's view of what old people look like which is both a sort of combination of kindly but also <laughs> horrific uh, in, in the way that they've yeah. aged yeah, and and I loved that. I just thought that was just so beautifully done. Yeah, me too. I would also like to pour one out for the heron himself, <laughs> who was this sort of... The heron is brilliant. Yeah, who was this... Um, yeah. In the beginning, he's this sort of menacing heron, and then you start to realize that his eyes are coming in through his mouth, and you're like, that's weird. And then you start to realize that his gums are coming out of his beak, but he's a bird, and that's sort of disgusting. And then you realize that the gums are a nose, and then you realize that actually there's like a squat little old man in the heron, dressed like a heron. And uh, when he's in the heron suit, he's powerful and scary. And then he kind of flops out of the suit and is just this pathetic guy with no power anymore. Uh, And that felt to me also like this uh, uh, perfect combination of like funny and disgusting and captivating. What I think is really clever about about it is that the heron, uh, you know, I at least did think was yeah, the kind of most sort of kind of skin crawling and scary bit at first, you know, with the teeth and it's very menacing. And then suddenly it becomes comic and it becomes reassuring. And the thing I noticed in the very small screening I was in is um, there was a family in the front row where you could see that the children were quite square- scared of the heron at first. And then the heron becomes mm. comic. And also right. in an odd way, I think the heron is also a slight metaphor for creativity in the same way that the wizard in the tower is, right? And then, you know, he, mm. he puts on his work frock and he's scary and terrifying. And then he's he's a person wearing a suit, uh, playing right. a role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, I found that like one thing that made me kind of go with it all and trust it all is that um, people weren't really all bad or all good in this film. Like the new stepmother aunt, <laughs> she wasn't just bad, but she seemed like she might be in the beginning. And the dad was like kind of an idiot, but also not bad. And the heron too, and the old ladies and Mahito, even the boy was complex. You don't always see kids being complex, which I think helped. Um, I would love to go on to talk about the context for this Miyazaki movie and about Miyazaki himself. Um, Supposedly, this is the most expensive movie in Japan's history. Uh, Studio Ghibli has notoriously put out films that were the highest grossing in Japan at the time they were released. Uh, Miyazaki won an Oscar for Best Animated Feature for Spirited Away. Uh, He's a huge deal internationally, but I still think of him in the U.S. as, although very well-known, kind of a cult figure. Um, Leo, what is his role in Japan? Yeah, so so look, he <laughs> like the most famous man. So yes, but he's very sparing with his public appearances, mm-hmm. and that has allowed a certain mythology to build around him. It, it it you know it places sort of disproportionate emphasis on the things that he does uh, say when he says them. Uh, you know, everyone's sort of looking for hints of, of, of one type or another. Um, and, and I think there's a real sense that uh, generationally there was a kind of golden age in which he and many other animators who who became quite famous, but also, you know, manga artists from that generation, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. In, now in their, in their perhaps late 70s, early 80s, and who gave Japan that, that very distinctive popular culture uh, that, uh, you know, was the first wave to be exported 
or you know perhaps better to say imported by the outside world and so he is he's seen as as one of the one of the protectors of that sort of golden age um mm-hmm. and, and and of course you know unlike others he has continued to produce outstanding work um uh, long after a lot of them have have kind of have, have genuinely retired and obviously yeah. takahata who was somebody that, uh, that 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 was a you know a very key figure in in the ghibli sort of history um yes that's isao takahata he was actually a mentor of miyazaki's he, he died a few years ago i remember writing his obituary for the ft and in mm. so doing you realize the fact that they were creating a genre you know it's not the anime animation itself is, is it was not the genre they were creating but they were creating something so distinctly japanese that became mm-hmm. as it were a, a a a way of 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 japan presenting itself around the world whether knowingly or willingly or, or not it was just that speaks for japan and so totoro you know my neighbor totoro mm-hmm. you know that that is sort of entry drug for a lot of people <laughs> coming into japanese culture um, in the yeah, same way that, you know, Kitty and Pokemon are but as, as well. But Totoro's th- right there. And he has the sort of, you know, has the artistic upper ground, I suppose, a lot of people would say, because it is so beautiful and so technically wonderful. Mm. It's, um, you know, it's funny when the film started, I don't know about in your theaters, but in my theater, when the film started and the Studio Ghibli thing came up, it comes up with a picture of Totoro. And when he showed up, everyone started cheering. And it's also interesting that you bring up Pokemon and Hello Kitty because this film feels pretty different. Like it feels a lot darker than that. It actually feels sort of like Miyazaki's movies fall along the spectrum from like very cute and cuddly and family friendly and childlike like Ponyo and Princess Mononoke to dark and scary. Like there's movies with scary spirits in them that are really going to keep you up at night, like uh, in Spirited Away. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, what 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 links all of those, of course, is that the central character is a is a child. You know, that, that, I mean, that's mm-hmm. also true of of Fireflies as well. Go um, over the Fireflies as, as well, and I think that that does link them in a, in a way that gives a kind of continuity through those very different types of of, of film that you've you know you've just described. And I actually, <laughs> uh, I, I think that there are moments in you know, in Ponyo that are a little bit alarming. I think that the capacity of these films to to suddenly jump out at you and be quite alarming is is something that, you know, f- for example, it, it is quite difficult to get that into uh, a, a Disney animation. You, you know, you, you can have characters that are, you know, very distinctly mm-hmm. malevolent, but they don't shock in that in quite that same way. I'm really interested to know what both of you thought. I, I'm For all of the, you know, the, the, the sort of the childlike sensibility, it is an old man's film. And I'm, and I must say, I, I left this in a while, a little bit surprised that he hadn't put in a few more moments that that would allow you to think otherwise. But actually, you you walk out <laughs> thinking this this is an old man's film. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And then you know, even it is hard to imagine. I suppose if you're a particularly old child, maybe you'd like a large murderous parakeet. But it's you know, <laughs> it's 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 hard to imagine a soft toy that you would give to someone to open on their birthday without worrying that it would result in an aforementioned child screaming the house down. Um in terms of its interior plot logic, it doesn't really have any. Not in a sort of a bad way, but it is it's a you know, I think the thing I found, and I think that Leo's Disney comparison is exactly right. And then it really made me realise how much of what you see produced by big studios now has clearly got this kind of, you know, an executive sitting going like, no, no, you can't do that. That's too scary. No, no, that's too right. alienating. And this is very much a kind of like, no, here is my 
singular vision and whatever happens with Studio mm-hmm. Ghibli after him, it is it is never going to be somewhere which has quite such a singular vision at the heart of it ever again, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did feel when I was watching it, like, this clearly comes from one man's mind. <laughs> and it's not something that could be replicated by anyone after him. And uh, and it's not something that even fully makes sense to anybody but him. I was, I mean, this is a question that we're kind of, we've kind of, we're getting to and you're, you've maybe answered in different ways, but I want to ask it to you both very simply, like, to you, what is this movie about? I do think it is, yeah, well, it's really about, I mean, technically it's about, like, learning to accept your new family, but I think it's really about <laughs> growing old and the challenge of being a creative and letting go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the thing, is, is, is in the end, the, the world does die, and although it's, mm. it's then kind of rescued with the this... The magical world fuck, dies. Yeah, and although it's then rescued with the kind of happy ending in the real world, um, this beautiful, terrifying, amazing world ceases to exist. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it is the thing which gives it its kind of wonderful feeling of grace is in an odd way that it's the moment when the old great uncle wizard goes, well, okay, yes, I let you go. And mm-hmm. I think that's really what's that. It's a film about letting go. Yeah. And so just sort of to, uh, to reflect that back at you and you tell me if, I, if I'm if i getting it right. The film is sort of about legacy who takes on the reins when you're gone. The castle is this magical world a studio of Ghibli has created and Miyazaki has created. Um, the great grand uncle is Miyazaki himself. And he offers the boy the reins, and uh, and when he doesn't take it, the thing falls apart. That is about accepting that things will not be the same when he dies. Yeah, I think that would be my take on it. I'd be interested to know. I mean, m- maybe Leo's sitting there in Tokyo going, God, what is this suit I'm on with? <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's all exactly right. I think that there is a, there's an additional thing going on as well, which is that I, I think that... <laughs> We as consumers of of anime um, and and of consumers of, of this particular studio and so on, you know, you know, we see the finished item, and it is nevertheless it is a product. You know, it is a mm-hmm. product into which a great deal of sweat and tears and privation, you know, does get. You know, these people, are, the, the, the people in the industry are, are heavily and and oppressively overworked, and, and this is not to inject sort of <laughs> misery into it in an otherwise loving. The, 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 the point is that there is. An element here, which I I think is that he is also nodding to, as it were, to, to the product of anime, uh, and that mm. these extraordinary worlds, you, you know, have come at a price, um, and that all the animators, all animated, all Japanese animators, know that it comes at a price. And I think, <laughs> in a very strange way, I think that the, as a way that the world falling apart is 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 in part. Saying, look, you know, there's just a blank page at the end. It's both the fear, but I think it's, you know, he's saying something about the the way that these these incredible worlds that he has produced time and again, and and, and here possibly for the last time, he's, do, he's doing it. It's an ephemeral thing that the whole thing is a very ephemeral mm. thing for all of the way that these works will, will you know, will, will doubtless live forever. Um, yeah, I mean, as you can imagine. Sorry, just to interject, there's that, an mm-hmm. interesting thing going on at the moment in the Japanese media, of course, which is frenzied speculation that he has another thing, another project on the go, right? And so it was very difficult to walk out of the cinema without that kind of, oh, gosh, you know, it, it, you know, in that same way that you wonder whether James Bond is going to be back each time and you wonder whether, you know, it's that sort of, oh, so maybe maybe he's he's done this and he's on to it. But, you know, you, you have to temper that with the reality of him, of him being sort of reasonably elderly. Leo, Stephen, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. We will be back in just a second for more or less.
Welcome back to Life and Art. This is more or less the part of the show where each guest says something they want more of or less of culturally. Uh, Stephen, I'm very curious. What do you want more of or less of culturally? Right, so I'm going to go for a less, which is I would like less expensive AAA video games. So I've just... Well, so one, it's that time of year when all of the all of the consoles send the, you know, how much of your time have you wasted this year? And I <laughs> discovered that I have spent uh, something like 450 hours playing I Was a Teenage Exocolonist, which is this beautiful, but, you know, very, very low, you know, low, low cost indie um, video game. It's brilliant. And it's available on basically everything. And I would recommend it to Everyone on, you know, whether you've got a Switch or a computer or whatever. I've also really loved Spider-Man 2, a game which cost an astronomical amount of money. And actually, although it's very good, it's not quite as good as the first one. And also, you play it and you think, if you had spent less on this and just reused more assets from the first game, it would be no worse and everyone involved would have a, a higher quality of life. So I would just like less excessive spending in the production of high-end video games and a, you know, a better deal for the people who make them. Love it. Great. Uh, Leah, what about you? I would also have a less. <laughs> um, uh, so I'd like less or fewer um, emoji. Um, the reason I say that is, is, is because I don't know whether you've seen that the that they keep adding to them. The latest mm. dump was 118 and it brought the total of emoji to 3,700 and something. Oh, really? That's um, how many? I and, didn't realize. And it is speaking to somebody who, you know, who had to learn Japanese characters in order to, to learn Japanese. You know, two and a bit thousand Japanese characters is, is more or less enough to read a Japanese newspaper or a Japanese novel. And, and, and three and a half, you know, 3,700 <laughs> is, is, is an awful lot of emoji. So I would like to see less uh, emoji, or at least slow down the pace of, 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 of more. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's a great one. Those are both great. Um, I want, I'll do a more, um, I want more documentaries where less happens. Uh, I don't just mean more observational documentaries or a certain style. I mean more like a spirit. I want where the filmmaker is hanging out with someone old who has opinions and stories and life and letting them talk and stress. <laughs> And just sort of hearing them. Um, there's a great one on Miyazaki that I watched to prepare for this, 10 Years with Miyazaki. Uh, Scorsese also did one in the 70s called Italian American. It's with his parents, and he's just hanging out with his parents, and they're telling stories, and his mom teaches him how to make her famous tomato sauce. And it's just great. They're about little stuff, like the stuff of life. And the little stuff revisits me, and it gives me something to think against, and I love it. So more of that. Okay, Stephen, Leo, thank you both so much. This was a total delight. Please come back soon. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That's the show. Thank you for listening to Life and Art from FT Weekend. I highly recommend you check out the show notes. We have links in there to Leo's work, to Stephen's newsletter, which you can try for free, and to everything we mentioned today. Any links to FT.com will get you past the paywall. In the show notes, we also have discount codes for a subscription to the FT, and as always, ways to keep in touch with me and with the show on email, X, and Instagram. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my talented team. 
Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. This episode was mixed by Simon Panayi. Topher Forges is our executive producer and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend and we'll find each other again on Monday.